spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying to survive the first frost, it's episode 238 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and man, we've been hitting fall TV so hard this year. I can't remember the last time that we talked about comics on the show with an interview anyway. So how about we do it this week? We're going to be talking to Sean Kelly McKeever and Alexander Tefengi about Outpost Zero from Skybound and Image Comics Volume 1. Going to be hitting shelves on November the 7th, so we'll dive in to this first volume of this just incredible book about living in an outpost in, in this frost. And, you know, it's the frost doesn't want you there. It's an inhospitable environment, and they are crea- they've created this world for themselves. It's just very, very intense. We will dive into that with them. I mean, we do have plenty of other reviews to go on TV-wise, though. Still going to be talking about The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Season 1, Castlevania Season 2, a bunch of nerd news. But speaking of comics, going to get a lot of that this week, because what we're reading is next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Carlos Magno, and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. Pull out the long box, fire up that tablet or your laptop, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And again, it seems like Vertigo... Doing a little bit of a soft relaunch right now. So how about we go to a new Vertigo title? Hex Wives number one, written by Ben Blacker, Marika Andolfo on the art, Marissa Luis on the colors, and Josh Reed on the letters. Beautiful cover, by the way, by Joel Jones and Jordi Beller. But I'll get to the art in just a second. Let's talk about the story first. It's based on a coven of witches who continue to resurrect and certainly seem to plague a generation of mankind, or at least a certain grouping. Of mankind, anyway. And a lot of this is centered around the coven leader, Isadora, who is just ruthless. I mean, but she is so eye-catching in her in her demeanor. And, of course, you know, she's gorgeous, but she's so ruthless. And she owns every panel that she is in. If you wanted a leader, she is it. Because she pulls no punches she protects the people that she loves, and she'll stop at nothing to do that. So she is an amazing character right off the bat. Now, she's kind of at the center of this man's effort to eliminate witches. She is the central figure of that. There's a certain man or group of men that are just trying to end witchcraft. And, I mean, this starts all the way back in 1692 Salem. and goes all the way up to almost present day. Or at least that's what it seems like. We do have a jump to like 2008, and and then it says a few years later. So it could be a little bit past. It could be a little bit before present day, but I digress because the witches actually the interesting thing about these witches, they don't know they're witches until they're resurrected, and have sort of an awakening of sorts. So they go through all these generations of of resurrection. You know, once they die, they they resurrect, and. Then they sort of, once they find out they're witches, they're almost unstoppable. But they don't know right away. And one of the men that's trying to eliminate Isadora actually has an idea. It's a very, very interesting idea. It's it's based on a bunch of research. And it's, he's like, you know, why don't we try something 
that we've never tried before. Because, you know, if you, if you keep doing the same thing and expecting different results, you're the crazy one, right? So once we hit present day, though, the book does kind of seem to just follow a group of housewives. I mean, it just seems like an ordinary story about a group of housewives until the end when you realize what's actually going on. And I will say this. I was intrigued, but this either creates a huge plot hole or is a brilliant execution, but we will not find out exactly until issue two. And I can't, again, I do this spoiler free, so I can't, I can't really explain why it would be a plot hole. And that's frustrating because I'd love to be able to tell you why it would be a plot hole if that were to occur. But I can't do that. But just when you read it, you'll understand why I would say, okay, this could be a huge plot hole. So I'm really hoping that that's not the case. I kind of think it won't be, but I've at least got to bring it up. Again, as far as the art goes, the cover, anytime you see Joel Jones and Jordi Belair together, it's really, really hard to top that because that's a powerhouse combo right there. But the interior art is actually pretty stellar as well. So there's no real letdown once you turn that cover and you see that first page, and that sometimes happens where you'll get amazing artists doing the cover and you have artists that you know quite aren't really quite up to that level doing the interior art, and it's a little bit of a letdown, and that's understandable. There's a lot of talented artists, but you know some just aren't on the level of the cover artists that are hired. So, I mean, it's understandable to feel that way. Didn't feel that way about this book at all. There actually seems to be a metaphor at play here as well in the story about constantly wanting to hold women back only for them to rise above it. Now, I might be reading that a little bit wrong, or I might be reading way too much into this, but there is definitely an attempt to hold women down here, and it's not working for these men, and it's and it's frustrating to a boiling point. So there, there could be a metaphor at play here about you know males try, men trying to hold women down through the course of, of generations and how you know women just aren't going to put up with it anymore and they're going to power past it. And the, this group certainly has not put up with it ever. And they've certainly come out on the, on the winning end every time. So it's just going to be interesting to see how this story plays out. I, I want to say that this is a poll for me because I'm really excited to read the second issue. But if the second issue falls flat then I might be out entirely. So I'm going to give this a pickup for now. I am very opt- I'm cautiously optimistic about where the story's going, and as long as I don't get that plot hole in issue two, then I'm good to go. We are going to be doing a little bit of an advanced review this time, God of War number one by Dark Horse Comics. It's actually written by Chris Robertson, Robertson Tony Parker on the art, Dan Jackson on the colors, Josh Rochelle on the letters, E.M. Gist on the cover. Now, I, I might be mispronouncing the name of the cover artist, and if that's the case, I do apologize for that. But, I mean, hey, when it comes to when it comes to names on the show, you know I'm, I'm hit or miss. So <laughs> maybe that's not an excuse, but it's, it's, it's definitely a bit hit or miss for me. Now, of course, we've got Kratos, and he's trying to set himself on a different path and keep his rage under control, which is, you know, not an uncommon theme in, in in what we've been seeing from him lately. And yes, the family is a part of this one. So if you wanted to, if you want to get an idea of where we're at in the story, then yeah, it is it is a part of what's going on here. Now he comes upon something while he's in the woods, and he he does this thing where he tries to like test himself. You know, so he's trying to make sure he stays 
on the proper path. So he kind of comes up on something in the, in the woods that really pushes him to his breaking point. Now, I won't say what or why, but it's pretty intense. And I will say that the cover actually has something to do with that, but there's way more to it than you realize by just looking at the cover of this book. Now, here's the deal. Now, what he doesn't realize is there's a choice he's going to make during the course of the story that would potentially change the path his life is on. I mean, completely change it. It's just funny how the small things that you do can completely change the direction of your entire life and the life of your family. So that, that, that there is a moment in this book where that does happen. We also do get to see him interact with his son a bit, but we don't get much of the family dynamic as a whole. But, I mean, if you play the recent God of War game, there are certain interactions with he and his son, so that's not totally foreign to you. But, but again, there's really not much there, but that seems like that's something that's going to be unpacked a little bit more as this, as this first arc goes on. Now, the first issue seemed to be very quick, and that doesn't really give you a whole lot in terms of story. I mean, it certainly sets the early foundation. I mean, there is a catalyst, but is this truly a main part of the story? It's really hard to say. So, I mean, I say it's quick, and, and that's usually not a bad thing. It's not really a bad thing in this case either, but at the same time, I'm still not quite sure what's going on and where this is going to be going, especially since you're talking about a mini-series here. I think this is one of five. So, I mean, if you're a fan of the story and the characters in general, maybe this is just part of an ongoing story for you, so you don't feel that way, but I kind of felt that way a little bit. Now, the art in this book is just great throughout. The cover really draws focus to, to that main sequence, one of the main sequences of the story, which I really, really love. And it's not just a random cover. It actually also has a major plot point matter in the story. So, I mean, the book's going to be out on November the 14th. So it you, you've certainly got time to make up your mind. I'm going to give this a pickup because, first of all, the art is gorgeous. I really, really love how it worked out. And I didn't give away as much as they as they do on the website in the description in this review. So if you want to go to the Dark Horse website, darkhorse.com, and get more of a description on the book, you could certainly do that. But I, I don't really want to I don't really point want to point you in too much of a direction other than to say you get to see the main character that you know and love in Kratos. You get to see him featured very prominently in this book. And you get to see him make a very interesting decision at one point. And we'll see how that goes from there. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, got a couple of shows to review. We're going to start with The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina Season 1 from Netflix. Next, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey everyone, this is D.B. Woodside from Lucifer on Fox. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to put our names in the Book of the Beast and give you our spoiler-filled thoughts on the chilling adventures of Sabrina season one for Netflix. And yes, from here on out spoilers for chilling adventures of Sabrina. So if you haven't gotten a chance to watch the show yet, get to want to skip ahead just a little bit. And, and this is one thing I will not spoil though. I will not spoil the ending of this season and that much I could tell you, cause I've just kind of decided there's no point in doing that. Right. Other than to maybe say, you know, whether you thought it was, a good way to end the season or not. I think that's as far as I'll go. But basically, if you've had a chance to watch the show or not watch the show, I mean, the gist of it is, of course, it follows Sabrina Spellman, who's played by Kieran and Shipka. 
And, you know, she's trying to decide whether or not she wants to become full-on witch. Does she want to sign her name in the Book of the Beast and become a full-on witch and, and, and attend the Academy of the Dark Arts? Or does she want to continue with her human life? And she's half witch, half human. Sort of like Aquaman. You know how Aquaman is half Atlantean and half human? It's kind of similar to that. So if you if you don't really have any expo exposure to the chill, to Chilling Adventures of Sabrina or the Sabrina story in general, that's kind of the gist of where she's at. You know, she gets called a half-breed by full witches and stuff like that. She really does. She really gets hammered on, on that particular part of it. But, I mean, you get to see her going about her life, and, you know, she's got a group of friends. She's very active. She's very much the activist in this entire season. As a matter of fact, you see one of her friends, Susie, gets picked on a lot, and, and she really goes to bat for her, and she goes, she tries to fight the principal, well, by the way, Bron Bronson Pinchot, I almost didn't recognize him as the principal. He's completely out of character from anything I've really ever seen him in before. I thought he did a, a really great job. But we get to see Sabrina, you know, be, you know, what are the kids saying? Woke these days? He, she's very woke in the in this show. And I know that that's been a point of contention for some people who have watched the show. I think it kind of makes sense and it it keeps with the times, and, you know, it wasn't really a huge focus of the, of the story, but it was there, and what it really set the tone for in this entire series, and I think one of the things that made me like the series was that she questioned things that were normally just set in stone, and I think that that is the beauty part and the crux of her character. She dared to ask why when everybody else just went, you know what? This is the way we do things, so we're just going to go ahead and do it that way. Like, she questions the entire process of signing her name in the Book of the Beast and giving herself to the Dark Lord and being at his beck and call, yada, yada, yada. She questions that whole thing, and it's been, you know, and her aunts, you know, you've got Aunt Hilda, who's played by Lucy Davis, and Aunt Zelda, who's played by Miranda Otto. And Aunt Zelda is the is the stickler. She's like, this is your spellman, and no spellman. Every spellman before you sign the book of the beast, and you're gonna do the same. And then you've got Aunt Hilda, who's a little bit more understanding, but but she questions that authority. And I think that that's the best part of this show is how she pushes the limits of what is normally done, and doesn't just sit there and accept it. I also like the fact that, you know, the one criticism I've heard from the show is that is that there are people who are like, you know, she's a witch and she doesn't really seem to understand how about how to do anything witch-like. She always needs help or she screws it up kind of thing. I think she kind of does okay. But you got, you got to keep in mind in the beginning, she's not even really a fully trained witch. So the fact that she can't really do a whole lot really makes sense if you think about it. And it's you can't expect her just because she's a witch or a half witch in this case you can't expect her to just roll out there and be do all, be able to do all these spells no no otherwise what would be the point of going to the academy for the dark arts she wants to find out you know she needs to learn these things so i think the criticism of of her not being able to or not understanding certain aspects of witchcraft i think that that's you know kind of an unfair comparison based on, you know, what we've got going on here. One of the one of the other things I really liked about the show is Sabrina's relationship with Harvey, played by Ross Lynch. In, in such a serious show with some great horror elements, there's such a crazy innocence 
with Sabrina and Harvey's relationship. It is one of the purest relationships for high school students that I think you're ever going to find on television. It would just, it just felt right. And it made you, it may, I'm not going to say something corny, like it made you believe in love again or anything like that. But there really just was something about their connection. And I think that Kiernan Shipka and, and Ross Lynch really had good chemistry in the scenes they had together. As a matter of fact, that scene where Sabrina, you know, tells Harvey about the fact that she's a witch and she's going to be going away and, and, and basically tells him the truth and he can't handle it. So she has to erase his memory and that emotional moment for her about telling him and him not being able to handle it. Their relationship, which they established very quickly and made you care about as a viewer really quickly, that moment really had a lot of impact in the early moments of the show and what the show did a really good job with is making you either really like Sabrina early on or really not like Sabrina early on but either way you were probably going to still be watching right I think that there's one thing we can all agree on though and that's on on Hilda is amazing Lucy Davis is amazing and almost everything she does I mean she she was kind of like the dark horse favorite and Wonder Woman, too, wasn't she? And now, all of a sudden, she's kind of my, one of my favorite characters in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as well because we find out, you know, that she participated in Sabrina's baptism, which kind of got her, you know, the loophole of her not signing the Book of the Beast, kind of got her out of that whole thing and, and got her to be able to kind of have her cake and eat it, too, and enjoy her human life and her life as a witch and kind of study at both places. So, you know, Aunt Hilda kind of saves the day. In that scene, doesn't she? And then we've got Ambrose, who I also love, playing by Chance Perdomo, and basically saves Serena a couple of times. And is that cousin? He's that cousin, and I grew up with a lot of cousins that are around me that were like brothers and sisters to me. So I can I really identify with this relationship between Ambrose and Sabrina because he's like the big brother that Sabrina doesn't have, right? So Ambrose really protects Sabrina and actually helps her. You know, in her defiance of authority, even though, you know, he's kind of banished to the house. He's in enough trouble as it is. But at the same time, that Ambrose, just a free spirit, right? So he's going to help out and do what he wants. And we certainly see a lot of that in this first season. And we get to also see, you know, Sabrina return the favor, you know, like when the sleep demon comes in, she kind of saves the day there. So there's a there's plenty of give and take there. And then her relationship with her friends, Susie and Roz, and we get to see you know, something very tragic is happening with Roz, which you kind of knew if you were a fan of the of the story anyway. You kind of saw that coming. So maybe that lessens the impact a little bit. But just her relationship with her friends and with Harvey, there was just such an innocence there. And then you switch gears to the Academy of the Dark Arts, and you've got, you know, Agatha and Dorcas and Prudence, you know, the the, the bad witches, like as, as I like to call them, and... You know, Sabrina kind of teams up with them a little bit, but they all hate her because she's a half-breed and they don't think she belongs to the Academy of the Dark Arts. And then you've got Father Faustus Blackwood, who is... There's just something very commanding about him, but at the same time, something so familiar in that villain role that he plays. I mean, maybe not necessarily your traditional villain, but your behind-the-scenes, like, mustache-twirling type villain, right? And then Mary Wardwell, by the way, who is serving the Dark Lord, we, we get to see that, you know, Mary Wardwell has basically been possessed at the very beginning 
of the first episode, we get to see that. But just the way that that she maneuvers and she kind of plays both sides of the coin, of course, it doesn't take Sabrina too long to find out that she's not what she thought she was. So there's been, there were actually a lot of really good individual performances, I thought, in this first season. Now, was the was the story absolutely perfect from start to finish? No, I don't think it was perfect, but the likability of the characters and the fact that once you get past the fact that this is basically an origin story type season and this is very much a, okay, let's lay the groundwork for a longer story going forward. I mean, they're already shooting the second season. I mean, they're, they're already going to keep going. They did the same thing with a series of unfortunate events on Netflix, and it looks like they're just going to keep the ball rolling on chilling adventures of Sabrina as well. So, I mean, while I don't think this was a knockdown dragout success, at the same time, it made me like it enough to absolutely keep going. And I think if you're a fan of Riverdale, you will definitely like what's going on in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. This show almost seems like it has an 80s vibe to it in the way it's presented and in the performances themselves. I'm not sure if that makes sense to anyone but me, but I just got that very 80s vibe to it. In a a way, a lot of the dialogue that was delivered was very deliberate and very like third-person-ish. So I don't know if maybe I liked it because of that, because I'm I, I grew up in the 80s, and that's just something I'm familiar with. Maybe it was like an old shoe for me. I don't know. But there was just something I really, really liked about it. And, and again, I don't really want to dig in to all the plot points, but I think that everybody kind of gets their chance to shine in this show as well. And we get to see Zelda sort of, you know, soften a bit as the season goes on and the family really start to mesh together. So it's not just about Sabrina becoming a witch. It's about Sabrina becoming, you know, a young woman with a family and and with a boyfriend that she loves and, you know, kind of just trying to put her life together in general. So it goes beyond even just her becoming a witch. And again, it, this all this is all based on if you loved Sabrina in the very beginning in the first couple of episodes, you're going to really enjoy the rest of the show. But if you just didn't like her, just didn't like the way she was presented, maybe this was too different for you, maybe you don't like woke Sabrina, and this just isn't for you. There is very much a you're either going to love it or you're not sort of aspect to this show. And, and I'm kind of in the former there, I, I think that I, I'm, I, while it wasn't perfect, I definitely think I'm looking forward to more Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. We're going to stick with Netflix, though, and add Season 2 of Castlevania to our queue. And we'll talk about that with plenty of spoilers as well next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Possibly the best video game adaptation to date gets a second season and a third season, by the way. Congratulations to everyone involved with Castlevania on your renewal for a third season. But let's talk about season two of Castlevania on Netflix, shall we? And yes, the spoiler is going to be flowing once again. So if you haven't watched or finished season two of Castlevania yet, you might want to skip about 10 minutes ahead. Although I'm not going to spoil the ending again because there's really no point and me spoiling the ending. And of course, we're following Trevor Belmont, Alucard, and Sepha, who are trying to defeat Dracula and his army from basically destroying mankind and killing absolutely everyone because Dracula's still pissed off that mankind killed his wife. And you know that's understandable. And we get to see a little bit more of that, as a matter of fact, in the beginning of the second season. And we get to see a little bit more about what happened with his wife. But one thing that's very interesting 
about this season is that Dracula is kind of vulnerable. He's weary right now. He's and there the 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 thing was that that was going through in the early parts of the season anyway. It was just saying that he he hasn't fed in a while. He's weak. He wants to die. He wants to be with his wife, and that makes for a very very interesting story because. You get to see him be ruthless and just, you know, cut mankind down like a hot knife through butter. And now he's weary and yet he's still got this war that he's fighting. And you have Carmilla who sort of drifts in. She kind of like shows up late to the party and then thinks that everybody should just feel like it's okay because she can do what she wants sort of thing. And you get to see her start to pull the strings behind the scenes a little bit and sort of like kind of like like a power play right in the middle of this, right? And trying to, you know, whisper in people's ears behind Dracula's back, but not actually telling him what's going on. And he just doesn't seem to be aware of what's going on either. And then you also have the fact that Dracula's, I'm going to call them minions, because that's the best word that I can think to describe them as fellow vampires, are kind of upset about the fact that Dracula has Hector and Isaac running this war and they're basically two humans and that's actually brought up by one of the by one of the vampires godbrand and I'll get to him in a second it's brought up that why do you have two humans running your army when you're trying to destroy humans well these are two humans that dracula describes it as well they hate their own kind and we get to see actually flashbacks from both isaac's and hector's stories and you understand why they might feel that way why they might not really be fans of mankind and it's certainly you you really kind of sympathize with them despite what they're doing you sort of understand why they would you know kind of think that people suck for the lack of a better way of putting it and but aligning themselves with dracula that's like the most extreme thing that you can do it's like well you know a few people suck so let's just get rid of all of them because you know dracula certainly got the right idea and then you've got god brand who was annoying as all hell. I'm not going to lie. This is one character. There are very few characters like, man, I hope that character dies really soon. I cannot begin to tell you how stoked I was when Godbrand dies in this show. I know it's a shorter season, so I, was gonna, I wasn't going to have to suffer for that long anyway. But he was so an- completely 100% annoying, and I think he was supposed to be. So I'm absolutely not, you know, I'm not mad at it. I'm just saying that I'm like, oh, sh-. I'm, there were times I'm like, oh, shut the hell up or, oh, get the hell out of here. I just didn't want to see him anymore. And I didn't want to hear from him. He made a point, right? But he was a douche about absolutely everything. And he questioned absolutely everything where when Sabrina did it in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, it was charming. In this particular instance, it was just annoying because he was whining. And I think that that was part of what really, really sucked. But, you know, going back to Hector and Isaac, they both have very, very interesting backstories of their own, very tragic. And we get to see the push and pull, especially with Hector. And, and Hector, you know, if, if you follow Castlevania, kind of, I'm not going to say plays both sides, but there's certainly a devil's advocate, for lack of a better term, thing from Hector where he doesn't necessarily agree with how... Dracula's going about things and maybe he's getting ready to have a change of heart. I'm again I'm not going to spoil what happens in the in the second season, but you get to see that play out a little bit when he's 
you know, with, with Carmilla and he's sort of assisting because he feels like he has to assist her sort of thing. She's really painted him into a corner, which I thought was really, really interesting. Isaac as well. She's kind of got them both sort of wrapped around the finger in a certain way. Although Isaac seems very much, very, very loyal to Dracula. And you'd see why Isaac would be more loyal than Hector as you go through their backstories. And, and that made for a very, very interesting dynamic Going forward, where you see Hector start to drift more to Carmilla and Isaac align himself more with Dracula, and you see that crack in the armor of the of the of the Dracula army. It was very, very cool. The dark politics at play in this was made it very, very interesting. And just Carmilla being evil without striking a single blow in the well, at least in the early part of the season. She didn't even have to do anything on her own. To be completely evil and just make you want him. You're like, oh, how is she getting away with this sort of thing? But but then again, then you think about it and you're like, you're rooting for Dracula in a way. And how ridiculous is that? Because Dracula wants to destroy the human race. And then you've got Trevor Belmont and Alucard and Sifa. And they're trying to figure out how on earth do we defeat this army? We're outmanned. We, we are, they're better than we are. And they have more. They have more assets. And what the hell are we going to do? And it was very, very cool, by the way, to see the Belmont archive that they're going through, trying to find those answers. It was very, very neat. And I love, love the back and forth between Trevor Belmont and Alucard. Do you have anybody where you work where you just don't like this person? They're awful. You can't stand them. Maybe they're annoying. Maybe you just think they're a dick. Whatever it might be, but for some reason, work you you two work so well together that you put up with it. I feel like that is Trevor Belmont and Alucard's relationship to a T because they're telling each other to go fuck themselves and all this other stuff. And it, but they're but they're and then they laugh about it two seconds later. And I realize that that can just be guys being guys. I understand that that some guys just have that relationship with one another. But then you hear Alucard even say when they're in the Belmont archive, Sif is like, well, isn't this cool? And he's like, well, no, because it's basically a library of how to eradicate my people. So, no, I don't think it's cool at all. But yet here we are because then we need to be. So you sort of understand that he genuinely feels that way about Trevor Belmont. He just hates his father even more and understands that the way his father's doing things aren't really the way the things should be done. So it's just a very interesting dynamic to play out as the season goes on. But again, the dark politics in this are so good. I mean, it goes beyond the blood and the gore and the battle itself, and there's a ton of blood and gore. You get to see some ruthless kills, some ruthless deaths, and the reanimations of the dead bodies and the and the dead demons that, that Hector and Isaac are doing, that, that those dark arts that, that are at play there is so amazing. And then you get to see nice little Castlevania Easter eggs as you go through the Belmont archive and as we head towards the battle. And there's just so much to love about Castlevania. I know that they the first season took some heat from critics and people. I really enjoyed the first season. I think I enjoyed the second season even more because it was Addie Shankar and the group Stepping, taking one step forward and saying, you know what? Yes, we've got the gore. We've got the action. But we are so much more than that. And they showed flashes of that in the first season by spotlighting their relationship 
between Dracula and his wife and how he was a scientist and he was on the right path until his wife was killed when he was away, when he was trying to study why humans are good people and then humans kill his wife sort of thing. So, and that was another really interesting part about the beginning of season two is we get to see exactly how that played out and how she tried to stop them and say, look, he's good now. You're going to ruin this if you hurt me. And that just made them think that she was even more of a witch. So, but this season even takes it a step further and that you see almost a Game of Thrones-like politics at play here. And that's one of the things that people love about Game of Thrones. But you know what? Castlevania does this differently and does it just as well as Game of Thrones does. I cannot wait for the third season of Castlevania. And I love the fact that it's eight episodes, half-hour episodes. You, there's nothing dragged out here. I mean, I think the first, well, remind me, the first season was six episodes, I believe. And now we get eight. You don't, nec- you don't need to go to 10. You don't need to go to 13. Keep it in that six to eight range because, you know, you power through it and then you're like, oh man, I really want more. That's how you should feel when you're done with one of these things. You should feel like, oh man, I want more. And after 13 episodes, even if you enjoyed the hell out of what you watched, you're like, all right, well, I can wait for the next season. I don't want to feel that way. I want to feel like I need this in my life right now. And that's how I feel about Castlevania because nothing was dragged out in this series. It just put the accelerator down, saw the finish line, and got there and said, what do you think about that? And what I think is that I love it and I want season three of Castlevania. And I'm so glad that Netflix was smart enough to know that there should be a third season. So bravo to everybody involved with Castlevania on Netflix because it is a huge winner. And whatever Addy Shankar is doing after this, I don't care if it's Metroid. I don't care if it's Legend of Zelda. I know there's a lot of rumors floating around. He's going to tell us in a couple of weeks. Can't wait to find out what it is, but I'm going to watch the hell out of that because if anybody knows how to bring a video game to life, it's Addy Shankar, and I hope he does them all, quite frankly. And I, I think everyone else should just stop because Addy Shankar's found it out And if you want a video game adapted properly, go find this dude and let him do it because he's got this on lock. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Season 2 of Castlevania on Netflix. Time to take care of some nerd news next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to travel back in time before Sean Bean dies again. That's right, it's time for nerd news. And before I get to the story about the Game of Thrones prequel series, which is going to be our top story this week... I want to wish a speedy recovery to Jesse L. Martin, who's going to be taking a break 
from the flash as he recovers from a back injury. Back injuries are no joke. I've gotten a couple chances to chat with Jesse L. Martin. He's a great guy, and I hope he's back on the show very, very soon. Now, going to be talking about Deadline's report that came out this past week for the Game of Thrones prequel series, and we're starting to get some info. We have first casting news. It's going to be called The Long Night, by the way, and we've got Naomi Watts joining the cast. Anytime you can get somebody legit like Naomi Watts, who's a two-time Academy Award nominee, yeah, you, you're going to want her as part of your show. You've also got Josh Whitehouse, who's a little bit of a newcomer. You've probably, you might have seen him on Dark on the BBC. And those are the two that we know, as of this report anyway, those are the two we know for sure. Now, as far as the information goes, we've got Jane Goldman, who's going to be writing the show, also going to serve as showrunner, George R.R. R. Martin, of course, going to be involved as well. Now, we also know this is going to take place a thousand years before the events of Game of Thrones that we're seeing now. It's actually going to chronicle the descent from the golden age of heroes to, you know, kind of mankind's darkest hour sort of thing. So, first of all, I think it's funny. George R.R. R. Martin cannot finish a book to save his life, it seems like. And yet here we are, Game of Thrones prequel number one, going to start rolling on that. And we know that there's a few more that are coming. I'm not sure this new book is ever really going to be finished. Or maybe it is finished as of me saying this and I just haven't seen it yet. So if that's the case, I apologize to George R.R. R. Martin. If that is not the case, then I mean, I'm sure that there's a laptop that needs to be propped open and, you know, typing that needs to be done. And hopefully that book will be done sooner rather than later. Now, it begs an interesting question, though, because, you know, what do you focus on? Do you focus on something that's happening in Game of Thrones right now and give us kind of an origin of something like, you know, finding out about the White Walkers or finding out about the East or finding out about, you know, the legacy of the Stark family? Do you do you go with stuff like that? Or do you go with something that we haven't really seen a whole lot of that is loosely based on stuff that we already know or stories that we might be familiar with? I mean, do you go direct or do you go indirect? And I think that that's the problem with the prequel series, right? Is that you have to be careful with that. Although, I mean, this is Game of Thrones and it seems like fans will eat it up no matter what it is. But again, if it's too similar... There might get a bur- there might be a burnout on that, but if it's not, and we get something that's a little bit different, but it's still based in the same world, and you know maybe an Easter egg here and there, and I'm not a huge fan of putting Easter eggs all over the place, but if you do it properly, it will keep people interested. So I mean, you've got you've got Naomi Watts. That's a really really good start, and I'm sure the cast will fill out. They did a great job casting the original Game of Thrones. I'm not sure the show would have succeeded without that amazing cast. So it just seems like HBO and the folks know what they're doing here. So I'm just going to trust that they're going to put this on the right path and that this is going to be yet another very, very successful in the long line of the Game of Thrones series. Speaking of another book series that's heading to the screen, you know The Witcher is going to be coming to Netflix. You know that Henry Cavill is going to be playing Geralt. And we finally got that first look that Netflix put out of Henry Cavill as Geralt and Twitter lost their minds. And it seemed like the biggest argument was lots of fans thinks that it's just uh, Legolas looking much, much older after the events of Lord of the Rings. And, and I get it. I see it. You know, once you, it's like one of those things where once somebody says it, you go, okay, 
I mean, it's hard to unsee that now that I've that that I've heard that. But then you've got other fans complaining about the lack of a beard, and it's like, okay, now we have to remember that these were books too. We're not just talking about the games here. It's 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 easy to forget that this is a book series before the game existed. So let's keep that in the back of our minds, shall we? Is that we're not necessarily basing this on stuff that you've played in the game. So we have to keep that in mind. And I think that that's hard for a lot of fans to do because a lot of fans, maybe their only exposure is to the game. And now correct me if I'm wrong here, but didn't Geralt hate his beard in the books and didn't even have one in the first book, right? So, I mean, I'm not making excuses here, but I'm just saying that, you know, you you see the scar, right? And then you see the no beard, you see the clean-shaven Geralt, and maybe that throws you. I understand that. But isn't that kind of the point? To give you something that you haven't seen before? Do we have to see the exact same thing that we've already seen? Or do we have, and, and before we just stop complaining about it? Is that the only thing we're not going to complain about? It's like, oh, well, this is what I've seen. This is what I recognize. This is what this should be. No, give me something else. Give me something that I haven't seen already. Maybe we find out how he got the scar. Obviously, you know, you read the books kind of thing. I, I understand that. But, you know, you see this. It's different when you see a book play out on the screen than a video game play out on the screen or something that's already happened play out on the screen. I don't want to see something I've already seen. I don't necessarily want to see something I've already read either, but there are liberties that can be taken there. But there is something to be said for iconic scenes and books being brought to life, right? And I think that that's what The Witcher has a chance to do here, is to give us a a good adaptation, or at least a loosely based adaptation, that sticks to the true nature of the characters, and just tell me a good story. I don't need it to be exactly the way it was, but if you're not going to do that, you need to keep the essence of the characters in mind. And what you need to realize if you're a fan of The Witcher is, and I understand why you're upset, you have to realize is that this is something you haven't gotten a chance to see yet. This is something that was pulled out of a book that you have not seen in a game yet. And it's understandable why you'd be thrown based on the familiar, but you have to understand that this is not something that you've seen and give it a chance before you write it off just based on the fact that there's no beard and no scar. I think that, that would be really, really unfair to just write it off at that point. Speaking of things that I think they were kind of writing in, being election season and all, you know, we can write stuff in, right? How about we write in a Falcon and Winter Soldier series? Can we do that on Disney Play? You heard about those supposed Marvel series, the limited series that were going to be coming to Disney Play. And what were the rumors we first heard? It was going to be Loki and Scarlet Witch series, right? Well, apparently... Falcon and Winter Soldier are the first pair to get an actual writer. This according to Variety. Of course, none of this is confirmed. Disney and Marvel aren't going to have a report come out there and go like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. They like to do things on their terms. So here's the deal. Now, it is the first of one of these to get a writer. It's going to be Malcolm Spellman, apparently, who who's doing Empire. I think that's a really interesting choice, and I think that that could really, really work. Now, what the story could be exactly... I don't think we can really nail that down, but there's obviously a shaky relationship between Winter Soldier and Falcon, but at the same time, you know, it's almost like Falcon trusts Cap no matter what sort of thing. So, and and this is his boy, right? This, you know, Bucky's Bucky's Cap's boy, so 
while it might be a little bit of an uneasy partnership, I think that it's one that could that could really, really work out in a limited series type of setting. Now, is this the Bucky Barnes that we saw in Infinity War where he's where he's in Wakanda and he's and he's still healing? Or maybe this is how, you know, he starts to make his way out from Wakanda. Or is this before the events of Avengers Infinity War? You could really do a lot of different things here, right? I mean, maybe this is a limited series about, you know, Falcon trying to track down Bucky, right? Maybe this maybe that's gonna be part of it. Maybe it maybe it will be a prequel. At this point, I, I think it's really too soon to tell. And I'd honestly be cool either way if it's pre or post. I think there's an interesting story. They could be told there. And I mean, if you've got the original actors reprising their roles, I'm not sure that, you know, you're certainly not going to be upset about that, right? Because you like Anthony Mackie, don't you? You like Sebastian Stan? Yeah, I think that this works for me. So if this is what's going to happen, and if this is the first one, to, this is the first shoe to officially drop for Disney Play, look out because, I mean, the sky's the limit on this because I never would have thought of a Falcon and Winter Soldier team-up series in a million years. So what they could do from here, yeah, I think Sky is really is the limit. Finally, we have the big casting news for the Birds of Prey movie. According to The Wrap, it looks like Ewan McGregor is going to be playing Black Mask in the upcoming movie, which, by the way, is scheduled for release in February of 2020. So they really need to get on it. Otherwise, this release date is going to be moved, and Warner Brothers has been doing the release date shuffle a lot lately, and I'm wondering if this one's also going to be in there. There's also the rumors that the movie's going to change titles. I'm not sure what you'd change the title to at this point. And you've also got the fact that it might be rated R, and these, of course, two various reports. It looks like that one's confirmed, though. So what that means to me is that Ewan McGregor is not going to have to hold back as Black Mask. You have to remember, too, that Black Mask is ruthless, but he's definitely got some charisma and a sense of sarcasm to him. And I think Ewan McGregor plays that very, very well. So I, I first I wasn't sure about this casting. Then I was like, you know what? This is legit. Ewan McGregor, very, very talented actor and certainly a bit of a chameleon and can pull off that dark role. There, there was some dark stuff that he did early on in his career that you might forget as well. And this is something that he can absolutely pull off. And and I think that this could really work. As a matter of fact, he's going to be reunited with Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right? Because they were on Fargo together. I think it was season three. Wasn't it that they worked together and she's going to be playing Huntress? So there's going to be some familiar faces on there as well. Mask or no mask, we will get to see Black Mask have a familiar face to play off of in this movie. And I, I you know, what? no matter what they call it, it's going to be, first of all, nice to see these characters on the screen. I don't think we would have gotten Black Mask in a Batman movie in a million years, so I'm glad they're putting him in something because I think that's a character that really works on the big screen more than it would work on the small screen because, you know, you kept waiting for it. And we got to see Black Mask on the small screen in, in a little bit already, didn't we? But it wasn't a ton, so it really, really wasn't enough. And I think that's going to work much better here on the big screen. And whether they call this movie Birds of Prey or if they call it, you know, I guess you can't really call it Gotham City Sirens either, but you certainly can't necessarily call it Birds of Prey. It's certainly more Birds of Prey than Gotham City Sirens. So I don't think you want to get too cute with the name unless you want to say World's Finest. I'm not sure anybody would be upset about that. Just saying, you know, World's Finest, and then you just stick a little tag at the end of it. I think fans would be okay with that. 
I know that this isn't maybe a traditional world's finest. That's a title that's still gone begging, and I don't understand why Warner Brothers and DC have not used that title for something yet. Hey, I suggested a world's finest limited series for the CW shows a while ago. Maybe it's something they could do on DC Universe. I'll remind you of that, by the way. My idea was is that you take a protagonist, you get an antagonist, you give them six to eight episodes, and you let the story play out, and then you move on. And, and you go from there. And maybe if these if this character's story is successful, you bring them back and team them with another one. Or give them another shot at a limited series. But then just keep switching it over and over and over. Give six to eight episodes. Certain characters, kind of like what Marvel wants to do with Disney Play. Except this was you know an idea that I had for DC and the CW a while back. And this is certainly something you could do for DC Universe. And call it World's Finest. And then, like, World's Finest, Jason Todd. You give Jason Todd his own limited series, and then you move on to something else. World's Finest, Wonder Girl. Focus on Wonder Girl. Pick a villain. Doesn't I don't care who it is, but pick something. I think that that's something that would be really, really cool, especially for DC Universe. I think they could do that. So if you want to start that in the movies, though, you could certainly do that as well. So saying, I don't know, World's Finest, Huntress and Black Canary, or World's Finest, Harley Quinn and the Birds of Prey, I'm not sure that that would be a terrible idea. I'm just saying. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to head to the Outpost. That's right, Outpost Zero, Volume 1 from Image Comics and Skybound. We're going to talk to Sean Kelly McKeever, the writer, and the artist Alexandra Tefengi. Next, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Matt Hawkins. I'm a uh, writer primarily, but also the president of Top Cow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You heard us review the first issue. Now we're going to talk about the first volume of Outpost Zero from Skybound and Image Comics. So excited to have the writer on, Sean Kelly McKeever, and the artist as well, Alexander Tefengi. Guys, how's it going? Great, thanks. Yes, thank you. Great. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the title of the first volume is The Smallest Town in the Universe. But at the same time, I mean... The world just seems so vast. So how do you balance that small town feel, but still with this surrounding inhospitable world you've got going on? Well, I mean, it's really easy if you're, you know, if you're trapped inside of this, this biome, uh, it doesn't really feel like there's anything beyond it. You know, it's a lot like um, the book is really kind of an extension of growing up in a small town. And I did a series called The Waiting Place about 20 years ago. Um, that was about that. And I wanted to do something with a science fiction feel to it. So this is like, you know, the waiting place was someplace that everybody was kind of spinning their wheels and like waiting for their chance to get away. And Outpost Zero is the place you can never get away from. <laughs> you know, you're going to be there forever and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's what gives it that that sense, even though it's kind of a big part of the biome that they still have. Um, it's very empty and it's there's nowhere else in in the entire universe that most of them can go. The outpost itself, guys, is very interesting because it, it's essentially an artificial living experience. Like talk about the artificial sky that they have going on there. There's even times in the story where that's actually brought up and how important it is to keep up appearances for the morale of the citizens. So, did you guys both kind of discuss how you would feel in that situation if you were inside the outpost? We. Never talked about it per se, but when I read uh, Sean's script, I can un- understand the feeling, the, the, the picture he has about the, the, the outpost and how it feels. So, yeah, for me, it's enough to, to uh, interpret and to uh, create the, the drawings uh, accordingly. 
Yeah, I think between Alex and, and Jean-Francois uh, Olu, that they do a terrific job with that, that artificial sky that when it's gone, you really notice that it's gone. And it's, it's really kind of harrowing <laughs> when the sky disappears. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that actually, you know, that plays a big role in the story. I won't, I'm trying not to spoil anything here, guys. I know that the single issues have been out, but I'm going to try and not spoil as much as possible. And if I do, I'll warn everybody. So don't worry about that. So one of my favorite characters in the whole first volume had to be Aaliyah because she seemed to me like she was just a constant wild card throughout this entire first arc. Would you guys say the same or would you have kind of a different interpretation? I don't know if I'd call her a wild card, but um, she's definitely tenacious. And she she is somebody who is innately curious and she won't accept any kind of answer at face value. So it does uh, put her in a situation where um, she she does move the entire story forward, really, with her insistence and with her intelligence and with her curiosity, like we see in the very first scene of the of the entire series. Yeah, for me, Elia is the the engine of the group. She's the the one making things move. Really curious, and she put the the the, the group in different situations. Sometimes maybe dangerous. Sometimes. Uh, mysterious so yeah uh, i like her very much that's a good point that like even though she's she's sort of pushing things in a in what she sees as a positive direction she also makes things very dangerous by being so stubborn and and dedicated to to knowledge and understanding i mean whether it's danger to herself or or to everybody one part I really liked about this book as well is her very close relationship she had with Stephen. And something happens with Stephen during the book that actually has a huge impact on the entire story. Now, at the same time, everyone seems to deal with things differently. Was that something that you all wanted to focus on in the story, kind of how everybody deals with serious issues in different ways? Because it seems like there's a good bit of that in the story. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that that's always interesting to explore how uh, people deal with trauma in different ways. Um, I've always kind of felt that there's no right way, but you know, there's also the fact that your process is sort of informed by how you feel about, you know, how you feel about various, uh, tragedies and, and, and the circumstances that bring them about that may color your entire process and, and kind of cloud you from making any kind of reconciliation with your own emotions. Now, one thing you actually, you both actually tackle in the story quite a bit as well is the internal political aspects of living in the outpost. Now, when I was at Comic-Con this year, I heard an amazing presentation about the possibility of colonization of Mars and the need to establish a government right away if that were to happen. So did you guys feel the same way with the outpost and establishing the government there, which was kind of already in place as, as we read the story? And did you want to put somewhat of an emphasis on the flaws that can appear in such a government? Um, for me personally, I, don't, I didn't want it to be a huge factor in the story. You know, I've set it up as it, as it kind of is, and you get, you get as much of it kind of described to you as is necessary for the for the uh, characters in the story but i'm not hugely uh, concerned with with the ins and outs of how the uh the leadership structure is set up 
um, I just kind of look at it as like, well, what's necessary, you know, because they're really in a survival mode. Um, and so it's, it's going to be something very stripped down and, and something where everybody has their own responsibility to some extent, uh, by the time they're considered adults. So that, that's really the extent of it. I, I, you know, I'm, I am fascinated by the politics, but I just, you know, unless the story calls for it, um, it's not something I'm going to delve super deep into. Yeah, for me, it's the political situations are not the, 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 the main issue for me. It's more to uh, trying to understand the people in, uh, in the biome as a, as a society, as a group and uh, as individuals and not really as a government, how human could uh, interact uh, when they are in a survival mode and what kind of dis decisions they make and uh, how they, they deal with each other. So, yeah. Right. They have, you know, a council that's been mentioned in the in the series. Right. Um, but really, by and large, it's it's and I think I think, you know, um, we're pretty much in agreement on this. Um, Alex, is that, you know, it's it's a collective. You know, there are people who make certain types of decisions because somebody has to. Right. But but by and large, it is it is one society uh, together. Yeah, definitely. And then you also have you have the chief that gets brought into that as well. And she has it seems like she has kind of a big role in the comings and goings, at least her job is the security aspect. And her part of this story, I think, is, is very, very interesting because I think a lot of the mysteries revolves around her job and what's going on. So at times I felt like she had the best interest of the citizens in mind and then she'd do something to make me feel the other why, otherwise. And I was going back and forth as I was reading it. Was that a conflict that you kind of wanted to create for the readers or do you actually think it's pretty clear where she stands? Um, I think that, that the whole idea with her is, is both with her job and with her relationship with Sam, her adopted son. Um, the idea is to let that, unfold and let you find out what her ultimate motivations are which is which is fun for me because it does kind of create these situations where where you're surprised by what she does um you know because you don't know when it comes down to it um what her priorities are um so you know and obviously in some cases uh she doesn't know what her priorities are you know she's what? trying to navigate this uh motherhood thing and and you know i mean she she adopted Sam from from about four years old, and she's been doing it for ten years. But it, but now he's you know he's fourteen, he's at that age where you know he's changing, and she doesn't quite know how to cope. And so that I think that that uh, affects her job, and her job affects uh, that aspect of her life as well. And that's what I'm trying to accomplish with her. I think, especially even going into the second volume, uh, people are going to continue to be surprised by her. Yes, I, I like this character because they, she has two faces. She has her public face, and she's she looks tough and strict, and she she runs the outpost. But on the other hand, she's uh, a, a woman, a parent, and she's uh, she has a lot of flaws. She's uh, sensitive, and we, we can see that in some situations, in some scenes. The, the contrast between the two uh, is really interesting for me. 
We're talking to Sean Kelly McKeever and Alexander Tafingi of Outpost Zero. Of course, Volume 1 going to be coming out on November the 7th at your local comic book shops and digital retailers everywhere. Now, gentlemen, there's a lot of very interesting characters in this story. And as the single issues have already come out, so you've, I'm sure you've gotten plenty of feedback from readers already. Is there a character that stood out that you didn't expect to stand out with readers that you went, huh, I, I didn't know that this character would be this popular, it would be talked about this much. What kind of feedback have you been getting? You know, it's it's been Aaliyah. Everybody loves Aaliyah. <laughs> you know, um, I think people like, um, people seem to really like her parents as well. And that's that's pretty much, you know, as expected. But I think going into the second volume, you're going to get a closer look at some of the supporting characters. And I think there's going to be new favorite characters coming up in the next few months. Yeah, around me, it's pretty much the same. Uh, Elia is really popular here uh, for me and uh, for the, my friends and the readers, uh, the feedback I had for the, from the readers. And there's also Sam. Sam is an interesting character for them. And uh, I, I can understand why. He's kind of mysterious and we are going to uh, discover more of him uh, towards the, the the story. I actually thought Lissa was a really a- interesting character as well, and it looks like we're kind of get to see maybe a little bit more about her in issue five. Is that right? Yeah, issue five uh, features her pretty heavily, uh, and you know, I, I want always wanted going into this story um, because it is an ensemble cast, even though really Sam and Aaliyah are the are kind of the two stars, and Aaliyah even. Is, you know, if, you, if I had to pick one, Aaliyah would be the star of the series. Mm. Um, but uh, but it is an ensemble, and so it was always my intent to do some vignette issues. So issue five will be Liss, and then uh, issue six will be uh, Mitchell, and we'll finally meet uh, his twin sister, Maddie, that keeps nice. getting mentioned. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to issue five to come out, because, uh, yes, it's all about Liss and... Uh, it was really fun to 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 draw, and I think the I hope the the readers will uh, have fun reading it. That'll be December the nineteenth, by the way, for anybody that was listening and wondering that's already read the first volume of Outpost Zero. Now we kind of talked about really quickly, Sean. I think you mentioned the survival aspect, and it's really a there's a push and pull for survive or thrive aspect. Seems like throughout the stories where. You know, certain citizens seem to feel differently, and certainly Aaliyah plays a big part in that as well. And I kind of went back and forth on it too. If if I were in if I were in the outpost, how would I feel? So, how do you think you would feel in that situation? And what was it like having to present an opposite viewpoint than, than yours, maybe, to the readers? Well, I mean, I'm kind of like you. I I can see both sides of it, um, and that's I mean, that's a big thing for why, you know, as to why I'm a writer. Um, before that I was, um, I wanted to be an actor and I was a theater major in college. And it's because I, you know, I like to inhabit sort of these different characters and, and, and see through their eyes. But, you know, I mean, if I were really in the outpost, I would, you know, I would be like Sam yearning to see what else is out there, yearning to know what else is out there. I mean, cause that's kind of what I was like uh, growing up in a small town, uh, but at the same time, I'd be terrified of of having that airlock open up. You know, terrified of the idea that any day there could be a storm cell that that destroys the entire biome. I, you know, um, I also grew up, you know, in the '80s when uh, when the threat of nuclear war was hanging over our heads all the time. 
So I guess, you know, I guess that's kind of, I would be, I would refer to my, uh, to my teenage years. <laughs> so let's talk about the frost for a minute because it, it was, it was never meant to support life. And that's the thing that's brought up in the story, but this group has, you know, kind of been able to make it work for years now. To me, it almost feels like the story of Krypton a little bit. It's almost like Krypton meets winter world for me a little bit, a couple of stories that I really do love. And, but, but in your case, it's, it's known that you're living in a place that doesn't think you belong there and almost doesn't want you there. So would you kind of consider in a way that the Frost itself is a constant and yet silent villain of your story? And Alexander, for you as an artist, what's it like to be able to present something like the Frost to the readers? I think I think it is um, a character in the story. Um, I, think, I think it's too complicated to say it's a villain. It's a force of nature and it's going to do what it's going to do. Uh, and, and I don't want to give too much away, but, um, but you know, there's, there's more than meets the eye out in the frost. Yeah. For me, it's the contrast between the, the biome and the frost that is really interesting. I wanted to create something, um, really harsh. You, that's something that you could feel that, it, um, create danger, creates danger, and uh, yeah, we don't see a lot of the frost, but when you see it, you have to feel it that it's, yes, it's, it's here. And it's, it, as uh, Sean said, it's a force of nature and you should pay attention to whatever you do outside of the biome. Yeah, I like that, um, that in, the, um, in the way that it's been depicted. Like I think about um, the Empire Strikes Back when they're on Hoth and there's... Um, there's that morning scene where they go out looking for uh, looking for Han and Luke, and it looks like such a pretty day, you know. Even though there's like nothing but snow and rock everywhere, it, it really looks like a place that you might like to, you know, see sometime. Um, you know, I very much wanted the frost to not be that, <laughs> and I think. <laughs> well, there's not there's not a ton there's not a ton ton in sight, Sean. So you succeeded. No. There. <laughs> no, you know, it's 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 definitely something that Alex has made uh feel very foreboding. Um it's it's not a place even if you're fascinated by what could be out there, it's not a place you want to be looking. Um you have to be really determined. Yeah, are you kidding me? I had to turn the heat up in my office. I felt it so much. It was it was really depicted <laughs> well. The times you see it, it really makes an impact. <laughs> All right, so we've been very, very spoiler-free up to this point. But again, the single issues have been out for a while. So I want to warn anybody that hasn't read Volume 1, I want to do one kind of spoiler-ish question for the fans that have already read it. But it's more of like a what-if thing. So let, let's do this. So we know that Stephen has gone into the Frost and presumed dead. I say presumed because, let's face it, guys, I mean, it's comics... And anything can happen. So so let's play the what-if game for just a second, okay? I'm not asking you to reveal anything about future issues, but just a what-if scenario. If Steven were to somehow just show up back at the outpost, alive and well, how do you think that would impact the story as we know it right now? Oh, man. I think that would freak some people out. <laughs> That's think, an understatement. Uh, I, th I think... I think... I think uh, it makes me think of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, it, it would uh, turn people's uh, life upside, upside down. And I, I think it would also show that 
maybe life is possible outside of the frost, but in in a way that they don't know yet. So, so yeah, that's, the, that's the juicy part of it, though, isn't it? That's the juicy part right there is that if, if, if in this story we find out that that's possible, then that just that opens everything up. And I love that. But we, and, that's, and that's the constant question that I'm going to be asking myself when I read every issue until it actually happens, if it ever happens. Well, that's what we want. <laughs> so I'm glad you're doing it. See, you've, you've succeeded in that. If that was the goal, then you've absolutely 100% succeeded. And that is why, if you have not read Outpost Zero Volume 1 yet, you're going to want to do that as soon as possible. You can already get the single issues at your local comic book shops and digitally. If you're waiting for the trade, going to be November the 7th at the same places. As a matter of fact, Issue 5, while you're picking up the trade, you might as well put the series in your pull box. That way you can get Issue 5 on December the 19th as well. It's Sean Kelly McKeever and Alexander Tefengi. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me in the Outpost this week. Thank you for that moment. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's so interesting to me when I was reading Outpost Zero and finding out, you know, what would be growing up in a place like, what would it be like growing up in a place like that? And how does that, how does your psyche deal with the fact that you step out the front door and the frost is absolutely going to get you. This is a place that doesn't want you there. And yet these people are finding a way to live there. And they were supposed to be starting a new life somewhere else. And that didn't work out for them because, you know, stuff went wrong mechanically and they ended up where they are and they just made it work. So kudos to them for that. But at the same time, now you've got to try and keep this land from constantly trying to kill you in a certain way. And then you have the inner workings of the teenagers who are trying to figure out their lives and the parents who are trying to do their best to keep to do what's best for their families and all this, you know, infighting that's going on here. It's just a very, very interesting book that has so many different levels on it. You definitely need to grab the trade. If you haven't read any of the issues, go ahead and grab that trade at your local shops or digitally on November the 7th. Make sure you're watching out for issue five as well. On December the 19th, because Outpost Zero, I reviewed the first issue. It was a winner then. It was a winner for me throughout. And I personally can't wait to get my hands on the next issue. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, to thanks to Sean Kelly McKeever and Alexander Tefengi for joining me this week. Love talking about Outpost Zero. And if you want to find out more, you maybe find our previous you know, our previous review of Outpost Zero Number One. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. We've got our past shows up there, plenty of comic book reviews for you to choose from. Also, find us on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram as well. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds, and hey, make sure you lock the airlock. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. 
And spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H Y P E R T H E T I C A L.